You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rose Lounsbury, and you are listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Why do we always try to replace less with more. I have never felt good enough. I suppose it started at the age of eight when my father died. Although he passed suddenly of a brain aneurysm, my eight-year-old mind couldn't help but feel inexplicably responsible. It was that age where you feel that everything happening in the world revolves around you. So I struggled with self-confidence most of my childhood. I watched as my older and more confident brothers excelled in their own ways. I battled a learning disability a crushing sense of being less than. So I tried to replace less with more. With help, my academic abilities leapt forward. I not only caught up to my peers, but then surpassed them. I had found my power. My mind was a humble home devoid of adornment. I spent the next few decades filling it up, filling the cupboards with achievement, filling the closets with awards, stuffing the dresser drawers with job titles. By the age of 40, my house was so full that it was overflowing. And yet, I was no happier. Accomplished, maybe, but by no means at peace. Even less so, in fact. I had replaced barren walls with cluttered countertops. And maybe, just maybe, what I truly longed for was simplicity. Why do we always try to replace less with more? Rose Lounsbury is a minimalism and simplicity coach, a TEDx speaker, and author of the Amazon best-selling Less Minimalism for Real. I was lucky enough to be mesmerized by her amazing talk this March at the Economy Conference. Rose, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Doc. It is a pleasure to be back here with you. It is a pleasure to talk to you again. You were on our episode, Thriving on Less, uh, which was with Justin Pogue and Jackie Koski. Jackie Cummings Koski. So yeah. I had the pleasure of having that conversation with you. It was really great. And now I'm looking forward to this one. I am looking forward to it very much as well. I had such a good time last time and such a great time meeting you at the Economy Conference. And I was so honored that you asked me back. It's wonderful when you meet people face to face and you realize that there are more conversations to be had. So certainly this conversation is a product of just that. I want to jump in by, at the risk of being explicit here, I want to go to an event that changed your life when you were eight years old. Tell us what happened. So when I was eight years old, I was in third grade 
And I had a spelling assignment from my teacher, Mrs. Farmer. We will call her to protect the innocent, Mrs. Farmer. You know, as a typical spelling assignment, use all of your spelling words in a sentence, you know. So she had allowed us to work with partners. And, you know, when you're in third grade and you get to work with a partner, you might decide to do some things that you wouldn't maybe be brave enough to do on your own. So my partner will call her Allison, again, to protect the innocent in this, in this story. Allison and I start the spelling words. We decide we're going to make these stories really funny. We're going to make our sentences hilarious. And so we start writing about underwear and pee. We just think that this is going to be the greatest thing that Mrs. Farmer has ever read. And she's going to just laugh like crazy when she reads these. We turn them in. And the next day I get to school and uh, my teacher calls me out in the hallway which is very unusual for a child like myself because I'm a very studious child, rather quiet. I do what I'm told to do. I fly under the radar and I excel. And she calls me out in the hallway and she's got my spelling paper in her hand. And in my memory, she's gripping it and it's like shaking. And she is so angry. And she said to me, she said, this is the most disgusting thing I have ever read. Because one of the sentences that I'd written that Allison and I had written was, the boy had to pee, so he peed in his mom's face. Now that sounds pretty ter terrible, but my little brother was a baby. And when my mom had changed his diaper, that had happened. So I thought that it was hilarious. And the spelling word, by the way, was so, which, you know, third grade spelling word, so. A lot of questions raised there as, as to why that was a spelling word for us. Anyway, so she made a photocopy of this. She told me I wasn't allowed to sit next to Allison anymore. And she made a photocopy of it and said, you have to take this home and have your parents sign it. The dread in my stomach, like my stomach absolutely dropped. I felt horrible. I remember showing the paper to my mom, like taking her to like the farthest corner of the house where my siblings couldn't see and like showing it to her. And I was so ashamed of myself um, as she was reading it. I remember I was sitting on the couch and like ripping my bangs out of my head because I felt so ashamed of, of this. And anyway, long story short, I think when I look back at my life, that incident, it's the only thing I remember from third grade. And it kind of catapulted me into being an overachiever because I didn't want to disappoint my teachers. Like still, when I think of that teacher, that's all I think about. And I feel shame even today thinking of her. I don't want to disappoint my teachers. I didn't want to disappoint my parents. Now, my parents, when I told my mom the story, she didn't even remember it. You know, she, she couldn't recall this story at all. But in my mind, this was, you know, a, a red letter day in my history. And so I had to go forward and overcome that. So I did exactly what was expected of me and more. All A's, captain of the debate team, leader of the marching band, also very cool, as you can tell from all my extracurricular activities. It kind of launched me into this uh, lifestyle or this way of being where I felt like my self-worth was dependent on how well I did, how much other people approved of me. I didn't want to let anyone down. I never wanted to be a source of shame to anyone else. And I, I decided the best way to not be a source of shame was to just do what everyone expected and do it really, really well all the time. And that's a pattern, you know, that has continued throughout my life. When I kind of even look at my life now, a lot of the way I judge myself is based on how much I feel I've achieved. And by achieved, it's based on do other people see that achievement as worthy or as valuable? Does society 
see that as a admirable thing to have done. Yeah, it kind of started with this stupid assignment in third grade, which sounds really silly, but it's the feelings of that day are still with me, which is surprising. I relate to your story because that shame, in a sense, made you fill your cupboards with achievement, much similar to how I tried to do with the death of my father. We talking here of achievement or accomplishing things. Did you feel the same about material objects as a kid? Did you have an interest in stuff? Not not really. I think to a certain degree, I've always been a bit of a minimalist when it comes to physical things. I can remember being a child and I realized that most people had collections of some sort. So I would try to force myself to create collections. I can remember trying to do a stamp collection, trying to do a pencil collection, trying to do a poster collection, but it never really stuck with me exactly. I obviously got the messages from society that Material things were desirable and I desired material things. You know, I wanted clothes that looked fashionable. I wanted shoes that were cool. You know, I wanted the right kind of jacket so that I looked like I fit in. But I think in general, I didn't equate my value with my stuff ever as much as I equated it with my achievements. Now, that's not to say that I never equated some value with stuff because about Eight years ago, I went through a a pretty significant minimalist transformation where I I let go of about 70% of my physical possessions. But I probably didn't have as many possessions or I didn't value them as much as a lot of people would. So letting go of my physical possessions, while it was difficult and there were certainly ones that I struggled to let go of, I have never struggled to let go of a thing as much as I've struggled to let go of accomplishments. And I know that that is true because the hardest physical thing for me to ever let go of was my teaching stuff. I used to be a a teacher, ironically. I became a teacher after that experience in third grade. And so as a teacher, I had kept all of my lesson plans, all of my unit plans. I had tubs in the attic filled with my teaching stuff. And this was just about a year ago that I finally let go of all of that stuff. And I had left the teaching field about five years before. So I always say it took me five years and one hour to let go of my teaching things, five years to get up the courage, one hour to let it all go. But it's because I had tied so much of that stuff to a sense of achievement or a sense of identity. So I was a teacher. I had the college degree to prove that. I had the stuff to prove that. This was a part of my sense of self much more than maybe the the nicest pair of jeans or the coolest shoes. I didn't equate those with a sense of self as much as my career. My career always was a sense of who I am. You ask someone at a party, what do you do? Well, I'm I'm a teacher. I'm a, an architect. I'm a doctor. I'm whatever I am. And so to let go of that teaching stuff meant I'm letting go of one of the little trophies on my shelf, one of the little notches on my belt of who I am. And some people feel that way about their physical things, their physical things, the way they talk about them, their possessions to them represent a significant part of who they are, or it equates to their self-worth in a way. And so my self-worth was never so much hinged on my stuff. It was a little bit, but never totally, but it has always been hinged on my accomplishments and my achievements. 
And that is much harder for me to, to let go of because it's not visible or tangible as much as the stuff in your closet. So let's go back then to eight years ago. As I hear your story, clearly letting go of the mental was much harder than letting go of the physical. Yet eight years ago, something happened in your life where you decided that the clutter was enough. And the first thing you attacked was the physical. What had changed in your life? What brought all this on? And why did you specifically move to objects as opposed to what was going on in your brain? These are wonderful questions. So eight years ago, what happened? I was teaching full time and I have triplets and they were two years old at the time. So I'm doing the whole work-life balance, busy working mom life, you know, working the two jobs, the nine to five, you come home, you work the second shift with the kids. It's exhausting. And by the time the kids got in bed, you have maybe if you're lucky an hour to yourself before you have to go to bed to get up the next day and do it all over again. So the impetus at that point in my life for minimizing my physical possessions was to try to get more free time. I wanted to spend that precious hour at the end of the day relaxing, sitting on my couch, reading a book. I'm a naturally introverted person, so I need a little bit of time like that every day. But what I found was when I got my kids to bed at night, what I was doing for the last hour or two of my day was dealing with my stuff picking up the toys and the shoes and the sippy cups and all that stuff, moving the papers around. And I wanted to reclaim my free time. So I said, okay, well, if I get rid of a bunch of this stuff, actually a friend introduced me to the idea of minimalism. So that then it kind of just clicked like, okay, you get rid of a bunch of the extra stuff and you don't have to deal with it anymore. Then you have more free time, huh? Novel idea. And so the impetus eight years ago was to get free time. But what's interesting is what I did with the free time. I started reading, I started relaxing, and ideas started kind of coming up in my mind. And I, I eventually realized, you know, I'm not really happy doing this teaching job. I don't like that I am confined, literally by bells, confined to these hours. I don't have any freedom or flexibility within the workday. And I wanted more flexibility in my life. So I tried to get a part-time teaching job. That didn't work out. So I left teaching and I started my own business at that point. And then I start my own business and I have more flexibility. And of course, there's a lot of fears that come with having your own business and all of that. But I think what's interesting is getting rid of the stuff got me what I wanted in that immediate moment of being a, a full-time working mom with three toddlers. And that was free time. But then the free time gave me a sense of mental clarity. The mental clarity helped me realize you're really not on the right path here. You need to be doing something else. It almost got to the point where I couldn't ignore it anymore. And so with that mental clarity, I was then able to change my trajectory in my life, start this business. And I find that this process of letting go continues to happen in my life. I've let go of a lot of physical stuff, but now I'm trying to dismantle the mental stuff. And, and that's really challenging. I don't think I would have been able to tackle what I'm doing right now, which is trying to dismantle these mental constructs or these patterns or habits. I wouldn't have been able to tackle them eight years ago. The person I was eight years ago couldn't have even have seen them. I couldn't have seen that I was running my life like crazy because I was trying to feel like a worthwhile person. 
I just thought, well, I'm running my life like crazy because that's how life is when you're a busy working mom. And so I dealt with my stuff because that's, that's where I could start. But, you know, hindsight is 2020. Now, looking back, I see how the cluttering my towels and my shoes and my coffee cups have now led me to trying to declutter or simplify my time and my attachment to my accomplishments. Such a deeper level of letting go, so much muddier and more difficult for me, but I can only do it because I've cleared the physical plate so much. So it's all sort of a progression and I'm still there. Like I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh yeah, I'm just chilled out and relaxed all day. I feel fulfilled all the time. Like no way. I wish I did, but I'm practicing and working toward getting there. Let's pay a little homage to the true physical issue. People don't know, but you had triplets and it was you, your husband, the triplets. And then you had, I believe, a live-in nanny or at least a full-time nanny. And you were stuck in your starter home that you could no longer get out of because the real estate market had gone upside down, right? Yeah, yeah. So my kids were born in 2009. So we're in this starter home. So it's 1,500 square feet. And my husband and I are obviously there. We have an au pair who lives with us. Because when you have three children under the age of two, the best, actually the most affordable childcare is a live-in au pair. And so we have to give her a bedroom and a bathroom of her own, which gives us, we don't have really access into the whole second half story of the house. So yeah, we have three adults and three kids living in 1,500 square feet. And that's relatively tight. I mean, definitely by American standards, that's relatively tight, even though three of those people are really small, still not a lot of space. So you were required by some means at that point to start cutting out some of the clutter. How did your husband take this? What did Josh think as he saw you starting to remove things from the bedroom and the cupboards? I think he thought Rose has found an interesting hobby. I didn't really have a lot of hobbies. I mean, when you've got three little kids and you're working full time, there's not a lot of time for hobbies. And so I started doing this decluttering pretty regularly, you know, in the evenings, on the weekends. And he said, you found this hobby. It's, it's weird, but it's a hobby. Like you like doing this. I'm like, yeah, I kind of do. Because every time I would get rid of stuff, I felt this freedom. It was addictive and I couldn't stop doing it. And he kind of just let me go. I was really careful to not deal with his stuff because I had the wherewithal to realize that if I went about this by trying to force him to let go of his college t-shirts and his Star Wars toys and his baseball cards and all of that, that it wasn't going to go very well for me. So I dealt specifically with my own stuff. And what happened was, and I tell this to all of my personal clients and all of my students now, if you are the change, you know, Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. I say, be the change you wish to see in your home. If you are the change, the people in your home will take notice and they will get on board with you. And it's a relatively natural and organic process. So what started to happen is, you know, I would take care of my side of the bed, like my end table that was cluttered with all sorts of stuff. And then a few weeks later, I would kind of see, oh, Josh sort of like tidied up his side of the bedroom. Like he tidied up his end table. And now I feel like we're relatively on the same page. I mean, he still has a much higher tolerance for stuff than I do, and that's totally fine. But when the house starts to get cluttered, which now that we're all working from home and my kids are doing school at home, it definitely is getting more cluttered than it normally does. 
he often takes the lead in saying like, okay, guys, we have to clean this up. You guys got to get all your stuff out of the living room. And I think before he probably wouldn't have noticed, or if he had, it wouldn't have really bothered him. So he was definitely not as zealous as I was, but I think what he came to realize, and I think this is what everybody eventually comes to realize is how much easier your life becomes when you have less physical stuff. You know, he would start talking to me about friends of his and he'd be like, yeah, they, their kids have so many Legos and they're so stressed out about the Legos. And they said they spent four hours cleaning their house last weekend. And I think he started to realize that the way that I sort of steered our family in terms of how many possessions we had was making our lives a lot easier physically, right? Time-wise, but also financially. In the fact that we were able to stay in the 1500 square foot starter house, which is still where we are. I'm still talking to you from that same house. I mean, this house is paid for. And I'll tell you right now, during the financial insecurity of this time, you know, he's a lawyer. And so his law firm had to apply for that PPP loan. And they didn't know until today that they got approved for it. So there's a lot of uncertainty about are people going to get paid? I mean, we didn't know. And there have been so many times in the last month that we've said, thank God we own this house. We don't have to worry about a mortgage. And I say that not to, to brag or to make people feel bad, but to just help you realize the, the possibilities that open up when you're willing to live with less than society tells you you should, right? Society was telling us, you're in the 1500 square foot house with the three kids and the nanny, my gosh, your husband's making six figures. Why are you not upping the square footage, right? Society says move to the next level. But because we didn't do that, we are in a totally different financial situation than we would have been if we had made that choice. So I, I like to share that just to let people know that if you're willing to go against the grain a little bit, which I know is what you talk about all the time, that's what this podcast is all about, is you know being an individual in society, not going along with the Joneses it can really create such amazing rewards for you because the sense of peace that I feel in this uncertain time where I do feel a lot of uncertainty, I don't worry about losing my home. That's huge for me to have that sense of, of comfort. You make that transition very smoothly from talking about the physical aspects, things like homes and decluttering to the mental aspects ideas of feeling peace because you have less. And it hits me at this idea that if you're into physical minimalism, there's a limit, right? After six months or a year of cleaning up your house and get rid of things you don't need, at some point you're done, right? Right. Yeah. When I look back, it took me about eight months total to do the first huge initial purge. And so that was from that first moment that I heard about minimalism about eight months later, I kind of looked around and thought, okay, you know, pretty much done. Like I've done a significant portion. I've addressed pretty much every nook and cranny that can be addressed in this house. And that's not to say that I don't have to maintain. So if you think about somebody losing weight, for example, they often go through a really initial serious phase of losing the weight. They might lose 80 pounds. Let's say they have a lot of weight to lose. They lose 80 pounds in, I don't know, a year or two years. I don't know the proper time frame to lose that amount of weight. 
But moving forward, they have to maintain habits, right? And they might go through periods where they gain 10 or 15 pounds, but then they, they know how to lose it again and they maintain. And that's kind of what it is going forward. So it took me eight months to lose that initial weight. But then moving forward from there, you're kind of maintaining and slowly checking. If things start to get out, out of control, you scale it back, maybe take another load to the goodwill. But it's never as intense as that initial period. Um, I have never had to go through my house like that initial time that I did. So yeah, you kind of get to a point where you've pretty much physically minimized most of the stuff. I mean, there's not a lot of excess left in this house, although I'm sure there is some, I know there is some, but it's not like it was before. And I think that's when the principle of minimalism or the principle of simplicity started applying itself to other areas of my life. So after dealing with the physical stuff, you know, in retrospect, again, looking at the timeline of my life, that was about two years after I started decluttering. That was when I left my career and started my entrepreneurship journey. So I decluttered or simplified to a degree my career, my profession. I changed it. I opened up possibilities that weren't there. And then about two years after that, I started the financial side of things. I started for the first time keeping a budget, which I had never done in my whole life. I hate spreadsheets and numbers. I'm an English teacher. And so I started keeping a budget for the first time, getting a handle on our debts, learning how to pay off debts more quickly. So there was that, that side of it. It's now kind of branched out into, like I said, my, my time, my schedule, and all of that stuff that you can clutter up, right? The calendar and everything. It's also been branching out into my health, where I'm simplifying my health. I've, within the last year, I've experimented with not drinking alcohol anymore to see how, how eliminating that affects my life. I tried eliminating sugar completely, but COVID-19, I, I got some sugar cravings <laughs> back and I had to kind of go back to the sugar a little bit. But it's just, I've seen this progression in the same principle of letting go of what doesn't serve you and keeping what does. That's what simplicity is. You let go of what doesn't serve you, you keep what does. And so I started that with physical stuff. I moved that to my profession. I moved that to my finances. I moved that to my time. I moved that to my health. You can move that to your relationships. It's the same principle but it can apply to so many different aspects of your life. And it's interesting because I don't always recognize it at first, but sometimes I'll look at my schedule or look at my to-do list, look at my day and be like, this is the same thing as looking at a cluttered closet. It's the same principle. You keep what serves you, let go of what doesn't. It's really no different. And so I've just been so interested to see how this little experiment with decluttering my towels has now morphed into me decluttering or simplifying so many more meaningful aspects of my life. You made a verbal jump multiple times when you were just speaking, and I've noticed you did this in your content too. You really started in the beginning of your blog mostly talking about minimalism, and at some point you started using the term simplicity. Are they the same thing? Is minimalism simplicity? That's, that's so funny that you asked that. So here's, here's why I started using the word simplicity. The term minimalism scares people. 
it's a, it sounds harsh. You think minimalism, you think lack or deprivation or not having enough or just the bare minimum, you know, that you can use to survive. And I realized that the, the term I was using was actually turning people off to something that's not about lack, but about abundance. So I've started using that term simplicity. And also I found when I started calling myself a minimalism coach, because when I started my business, I called myself a professional organizer. It's like, well, that's what I do. I help people organize. But then I realized it's not really that. I'm not so interested in organizing, you know, 500 designer purses. I'm interested in saying how many of these designer purses are actually adding value to your life and let's just keep those. So then I changed my my moniker to calling myself a minimalism coach. And then I'd go to those, you know, cocktail parties and, you know, what do you do? And I'd say, well, I'm a minimalism coach. And I would watch their eyes as they tried desperately to attach that to something they could understand. And then I realized, okay, if I added the word and simplicity, so I would say minimalism and simplicity coach, suddenly the eyes just, oh yeah, great. We could use that. Right. And so I realized that the term minimalism was creating confusion for some people, but also people who did understand the term, some of them were getting scared off by the concept because they imagined that to achieve that, you would have to live in a cave, be a monk, have nothing. And that's really not what it looks like. So I think simplicity is really a more accurate term for what I strive for in my life. And I think simplicity applies more to those other aspects that are not physical, right? Nobody wants to have minimal relationships or minimal finances. Like we don't want minimal finances, but simple finances. Sure. You don't want a minimal diet, but a simple diet. Yeah. And I realized that I I wanted to change my language as I probably, and I'm not even realizing it till I'm having this conversation with you right now, is I sort of changed the language as my message changed and expanded to other areas beyond the physical areas. All right. So most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago And I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. 
That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I have to admit that is how I read it. What I saw in your content is you were talking less and less about how to arrange your stuff externally and more and more about how to range your thoughts internally. And to me, that spoke much more to this idea of simplicity as opposed to minimalism, which always has felt very steeped in objects. Yeah, I think it has. I think it has. And and I think that's because that's sort of where it starts for a lot of people. Not a lot of people can dig in, well, some of them probably can dig in and start letting go of the mental constructs and patterns in their mind, it's much easier to start, as I said earlier, with the physical stuff. So I think the term minimalism might be a good starter point, but then it kind of expands and moves you into simplicity as you go. So yeah, I think that's probably why I started making that change. The other thing that seems very clear is you can do the physical journey fairly quickly in eight months or a year. However, the mental journey sounds like it's more of a lifelong habit of finding ways to simplify your life. Yeah, the mental journey is sort of a practice. It's a returning to. And I think that initially that was what frustrated me about it so much is just like cleaning the closet, I wanted it done. I wanted to check it off the list. I'd be like, okay, I'm cured. Now Now I'm completely satisfied with how my time goes. And now I no longer judge myself by how others view me or by my accomplishments. I wanted to check that off the list. And so what's actually been helpful to me in the, the book that I'm writing now, I kind of look at overachieving as almost an addiction. And when you, when you dig into the addiction community, which as a doctor, you probably have expertise here, you find that people who overcome addiction, it's really quitting the, the drink or quitting the drugs is, is relatively the easy part. It's then dealing with the emotional side of things that is hard that they have to keep coming back to. Because the reason that you were drinking or doing drugs was because you felt worthless. You felt not enough. You felt bad. There was something inside you that had you seeking this external thing to try to fill yourself up. And so you continually every day 
have to tell you, you know, you have to find a way to fill yourself up inside without going to the external thing. And that comes from awareness of your feelings, awareness of your emotions. And so people who are in recovery, they'll tell you they're in recovery and that's how they are the rest of their life. They are in this practice of reflecting on themselves of recognizing their feelings, of honoring their feelings instead of trying to cover them up by going to distraction or going to the substance. And I think that's much more of the practice of overcoming a lifetime, I'll use the word addiction, to achievements. It's a practice of of coming back and saying, I'm a worthwhile person. I'm a good enough person. I am enough. I do enough. I don't need these things, these gold stars these trophies, this applause, these certificates of achievement, that promotion, that employee of the month parking space. I don't need that to be enough. And that's a continual retelling yourself this new story every day. And you forget. And then you kind of have to tell yourself again and you forget. And so it's a practice. It's a regular practice going forward as opposed to the satisfying before and after of the simplified closet. It's a returning and that's not a failure. And I think that's why those of us who are like you and me probably who are achievers and we'd like to check it off and do the thing. It's frustrating because it's never done, right? It's never done that we've reached the point where we get better, we make progress, but it's never something you can check off. It's much more slippery. What I love about what you made with this metaphor of the closet, it feels a lot like my introduction where I was talking about I had this barren home and I kept on trying to fill it up with achievements and job titles. And for me, that seems to be the real connection with what we traditionally think of as minimalism, that metaphor of, well, first we try to fill our stuff up with physical stuff and then we try to fill ourselves up with mental stuff. And neither of them truly fill us up in the way we need to be filled up. And that causes a problem and that causes unhappiness. Yeah, that's pretty much the pattern. And I think the trick is recognizing it, developing the awareness to see it, because I think we just sort of experience this, you know, that hedonic treadmill of, well, I got this next thing. Why am I not happy? Right. We return to that set level of happiness And for many of us, our set level of happiness is kind of not enough. We always want more. We always want the next thing. We're always seeking. That's the life's journey. It's a life's journey. And we get better at it. The more I practice this, the more I write about it. What's interesting is when I've started writing blog posts in this vein, you know, I stopped doing as many of the, you know, 10 ways to declutter your closet, although I still do put those out there because that's helpful for people. I started writing more about how to stop stressing about your to-do list, how to start being kind to yourself. And I would put these blog posts out and I think, is anybody really going to care about this? Does, any, does this resonate with people? And the response that I get from people is rather overwhelming to these more thoughtful or esoteric type posts. So I think a lot of us are struggling with this. We just on a day-to-day basis probably don't recognize it. We don't take the time to sit back and think, 
Why am I running my life like this? Am I happy the way that I am running my life? I did everything that everybody told me I should do, but I still don't feel satisfied. I don't feel satisfied by my stuff. I don't feel satisfied by my accomplishments. Why is that? I hope what I'm putting out there now is speaking to people on that level as I'm trying to figure it out myself. Let's talk philosophy a little bit. You mentioned that people don't ask why they do these things, but a better question or maybe a question that's more salient at the point is why do we think either physically things are going to solve the problem or why do we think achievements are going to make us feel better? I would love to just say society, but I don't think that's the way because I think people have probably always been this way. It's probably if we dig into the nature of the human psyche, we don't do this when we're young. Little kids, they don't really, if they're, if they're blessed to be raised in homes where their needs are taken care of, they don't really question whether or not they're good enough. I mean, you have kids, remember when they were three? Those kids question whether they were good enough or capable enough to do anything. No. Three-year-olds, if you ask them what they're good at, they kind of look at you like you're nuts because they're thinking, what am I not good at? They think they're good at everything. They have complete and total self-confidence and belief in their abilities. And there's some point, and I watched this with my own children, there's some point in childhood, it's maybe like age six-ish, seven-ish, where you see kids start to doubt themselves. And they start to believe that they're not good at things or that they're not capable of things. And I think that that moment is when we start this journey toward trying to become enough through external forces. Because when we are little, we are born believing that we're enough. We don't need more stuff. Babies aren't out there buying Gucci watches, right? They're not out there like trying to get a graduate degree to show how good they are. They're just, they just are. They are enough as they are. And that carries through the toddler stage. But there's a stage where, and I think it's all of us, I think it's a natural human thing where we start to lose that. And then I think our life's journey from that point on is trying to regain it. And I've heard this, I don't even know. It was Eckhart Tolle wrote about this in one of his books. But there was this story of these golden balls. Like when we're little, we have like a golden ball and then we lose it. And the rest of our life, we're trying to find it again. I probably butchered whatever story that actually is. I've actually tried to look it up and I couldn't find it again. But I think that that's the journey that we're on, trying to regain that feeling of I'm, I'm woke up today and I'm good as I am. Everything about me is good. I'm enough and I have enough and I'm capable enough of doing whatever I want to do. Trying to regain the confidence we had when we were three with all of our adult knowledge and all of our adult understanding and all of our adult responsibility. The happiest people in the world are people who are a bit like children in ways, you know, they, they laugh easily, they cry easily, and they just experience life with a sense of wonder. You know, if you see a three-year-old, they experience life with a sense of wonder. And there are adults I've met who experience life that way. And, and if you've ever been around these people, it's just amazing the way they're experiencing life. And so my journey is to try to get to a point and and I work at it where I experience my life that way more often. And it's definitely a journey and a process. 
Rose, conversely, can minimalism and simplicity go too far? I think anything can go too far. I think minimalism and simplicity could become another way you try to prove yourself. And that's where I would say it would go too far. If you feel like decluttering your stuff or letting go of your stuff is somehow making you better than others, or if having you know, only one pair of pants suddenly becomes the definition of who you are. Yeah, then you're, it's the same thing as, as saying my 100 pairs of pants define who I am. It's the same thing. If you're using your external things by quantity, whether that's a lot or a little to define you and, and define your self-worth, then yeah, it's definitely gone too far. I think the point of minimalism and simplicity is to clear away the excess to allow you the space to explore who you really are and to live the life you're really meant to live. It's to eliminate all of that distraction that you may have attached to, to try to define yourself. But if then the act of decluttering and simplifying becomes the way you define yourself, you're kind of caught in that, in that same trap, right? And, and anything can become that way. Health can become that way. Working out can become that way. Even financial independence can become that way. If reaching a number becomes the definition, well, when I get to that number, then I've reached the pinnacle. Then I will finally be the person I'm meant to be. And you've seen this. People get to their number and they're not satisfied and they wonder why. Well, it's because you attached all of your self-identity to that number and that's not who you are. You are not the number in your investments. You are not the number of dishes in your cupboard. You are not the number of appointments on your calendar. We are something much more than that. And none of that external stuff is you and at any level. We famously talk about the hedonic treadmill, this idea that we buy things to make ourselves happy and then need to buy more stuff because it stops making us happy. But clearly, we have treadmills in other aspects of our lives. I've talked often about the achievement treadmill, which I've been on my whole life. The moment I thought I got the achievement I wanted, I was already starting to look towards the next one. But there is, as you said, fitness treadmills and maybe even minimalism treadmills. You mentioned briefly aspects of time. And I'm wondering, we haven't talked a huge amount about that today. Do we suffer from an epidemic of busyness? Oh, yeah, I would say so. I think that busyness is kind of a, a symptom of the, this deeper problem, right? We feel like we're not enough. We, are, we have low self-worth, and so we try to, to be busy as a way to prove that we're good enough. I would say I have definitely suffered from an excess of busyness in my life. Um, there's a bit of a, they, almost, they call it adrenalizing in the um, addiction community where you start doing all these things and it like builds up your adrenaline and it kind of is almost like an addictive substance, right? This high that you get from checking and checking and checking things off and doing and doing and doing. And brain researchers, which I am not one of them, but they do show that, you know, we do get a little bit of a reward in our brains when we feel like we have done something. So the notifications, we flip to this, we flip to that. Our brain is kind of rewarding us as we do all these little busy tasks, but it's really not helping us live the life we want. And at the end of the day, we're like, well, I was busy all day, but what did I get done? nothing. We feel like we accomplished nothing, even though we were doing little stuff all the time. So busyness is sort of like brain candy 
you know, it makes us feel full, but it's really not satisfying, just like candy. It candy masks what real nutrition provides. Candy makes you feel like you're filling yourself up, but it's pretty empty. Busyness is a is something that I have struggled with. And someone who's really helped me with that, Courtney Carver, she's a minimalist blogger, but she writes a lot about busyness. Her blog is called Be More with Less. And she has a busy boycott challenge that I did. And the first step was, I think it was seven days, you eliminated the word busy from your vocabulary. You know, it seems relatively simple. Just stop using the word busy. But what that does is it brings awareness to how often you describe yourself as busy. How are you? Oh, busy, busy. Or people will ask you, so are you busy? Yeah, busy, busy, you know? And it starts to make you realize that we, we're equating busy with good a lot of the time, right? We think if we're busy, then we're good. And it's not that having things to do is bad, but is busyness in and of itself desirable? I don't know. I don't really think so. I think we can be busy for the sake of busy, or we can be busy doing meaningful things. It's two different types. Speaking of meaningful things, let's pivot a little bit and talk about your current activities. You spend quite a bit of time coaching clients. Is that right? I do. Yes. I work with clients one-on-one virtually and kind of coach them through simplifying their lives. And usually that starts with the physical stuff. So we start clearing the physical plate. And a lot of it sort of just mimics the journey even that I went on. You know, we clear off the physical things. They find they have more time and then they have more time to pursue meaningful things. And then sometimes we can dig into simplifying their time, simplifying their schedule, saying no to things that aren't valuable to them. And I've also had some clients now that I've worked on my own finances, we dig into finances a little bit, simplifying the financial aspect of their lives. So yeah, I do. I spend a fair amount of my time with my coaching clients. And it's one of my favorite things to do because you just see such immense progress with people. And they just start to create the life that makes them feel good. And that makes me very happy and and blessed to be able to see that. And your Amazon best-selling book, Less Minimalism for Real, has been out for a while now, and you're working on another book? I am working on another book. And the more I talk about that, the more it makes me a little nervous to talk about it because I'm like, well, that means I really have to write the book. If I'm talking about the book, I have to write the book. But yeah, the second book is going to delve a lot into these ideas that you and I are talking about today, about busyness, about achievement, and about learning to let go of defining ourselves by what we do. So that's the book that I'm working on right now. It's a lot harder to write than the first book, I'll tell you. (laughs) Why is that? Because it's so much less linear for many of the reasons that we talked about. You know, I could teach people how to declutter a closet and here's step one, here's step two. But talking about how to dismantle a, a mental construct where you've come to view your worth by how much you do is much harder. And I think it's harder for me because I have lived my life this way for so long. And and me writing the book is me doing the work. It's me practicing these things and learning to let go of 
feeling like the, the goodness of my day was based on how much I checked off the list. That used to be my barometer. The day was good if I got most of the things checked off the list. The day was bad if I didn't, and I would beat myself up and berate myself for that. So changing how I evaluate the quality of my day is a really a huge task, and it's a daily task to be like, it's okay that you didn't get to those things. It's okay. It would be okay if you did nothing. You would still be worthwhile. That's like a radical thought to me. That I would be okay and I would still be worthwhile if I did nothing. I still have a hard time coming to terms with that. So the book is harder to write because it's me basically writing for myself as I try to grapple with these issues. And for me, writing has always been a, a way of discovering. So as I write it, I discover different things about myself that I didn't even know were there. So it's a very self reflective journey and in a totally different way than going through the closets was. At the beginning of my introduction, I asked the question, why do we replace less with more? And after talking to you, I feel very certain that we should stop doing that. Whether <laughs> I know for sure why we keep doing it or not is a more difficult question and a question I bet that you are going to tackle quite a bit in this new book. It's been a pleasure having you on, Rose. Before we say goodbye, could you tell everybody what's up next in your life and where we can find you? Well, you can find me at my website. It's roselounsbury.com. And that's R-O-S-E-L-O-U-N-S-B-U-R-Y.com. And what's up next in my life? I am doing some virtual speaking. So later this week, I'm going to be speaking at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati virtually, talking to them about simplicity for professionals and focusing specifically on our current situation and how we achieve simplicity during a pandemic. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Rose Lounsbury. That's a wrap. So let's talk about social media. The other day I was scrolling through Facebook and immediately I need to admit that since this shelter in place order, since this pandemic and COVID, I'm spending a lot more time at home. And so I'm not interacting socially with people I used to, right? Coworkers, friends, etc. So one of the main ways I end up interacting with other people is through social media. But you do things differently in social media. For one, people who are your friends in Facebook or follow you on Twitter or Instagram aren't necessarily your friends. You don't know them. You don't have any shared experiences. These are not people you spend a lot of time with other than online. And so when you know them through your online interactions, it's not like you can see their facial expressions or hear the tone of their voice. It's not like you understand when they're joking with you or being serious. So you really don't know them. You just know their online persona. I have maybe a thousand or two thousand people that I'm friends with on Facebook and I try to keep the political spectrum pretty broad. Like I don't only want to be talking to people who think just like I do. Now whether that's politically, whether that's financially, worldview in general, as long as someone is thoughtful and can explain their opinions. I won't stop following them or won't stop reading their posts just because I don't agree with them. 
And I think this is important because otherwise your world becomes this small social circle of people who think and look and sound exactly like you. Now, obviously, with this pandemic and coronavirus, it's brought out a lot of strong feelings. Uh, many people don't agree with each other. People who I used to feel like I had a lot in common with as I hear them give their opinions or post articles about what's happening in the world today, whether it's politics or whether it's this pandemic, I realize that maybe I'm not as much like them as I thought I was. So it brings up an important question. If people are posting things, let's say on Facebook, that you radically disagree with, should you keep following them and should you keep listening to them? You know, as I just said, to me, it's kind of important because I want to be exposed to other people's opinions. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I can learn something. I feel like if you're only preaching to the choir, you're going to have a very limited access to the world and other opinions than your own. So recently, I was reading someone's expressed opinion about something having to do with the coronavirus, and they had posted an article, and the article between you and me, I thought, was completely and utterly factually wrong. Now, I'm not talking about I didn't agree with it. I'm not talking about there was a little bending of truth. It was utterly wrong. And I based that on my reading and my knowledge and my scientific opinion, being a physician, I do have some understanding of how science works and how diseases work and how viruses work. And so this woman posted something that I totally was in disagreement with, and I thought a moment or so before I decided to respond. And she posted one specific opinion, and I told her why I didn't agree and posted an article that shows how factually some of the information was just totally off and then watched and waited to see how she responded. And this conversation went on for maybe 10 to 15 replies, and I found it really interesting. When I questioned her facts, she switched to a different topic. So she didn't say, no, your factual information that you presented is wrong, or no, I don't agree with you. She just decided to switch topics and started arguing a different point that was unrelated. So I said, hmm, that's interesting. So I went back and tried to disassemble what she said and show why I didn't agree with that. And then again, I posted some links to reasons why I thought that was wrong too. And then she did the same thing, which is she didn't agree or disagree with my rebuttal. She just moved on to a different point completely. So this went back and forth for a little while. And finally, finally... She said, well, one of your sources of the 10 I gave was a really bad source, and I don't have time to argue with an internet warrior or a Google warrior. And then she blocked me. And it was really interesting because, you know, that's fine. She blocked me. She didn't want to argue about something. But the actual post itself was fairly argumentative to begin with. So it wasn't like she wasn't expecting people to not argue with her. And then... She continued to go back and forth with me, and I was being very respectful. In fact, there were multiple times when I agreed with some of her points and stated that and was appreciative and kind and was trying to argue intellectually, uh, but not be argumentative, so to speak. And it was the first time in a long time I've been blocked, and it makes me think about 
whether I should even bother, right? So you see people post their opinions in social media, and I always see these arguments take place, but I rarely see anyone change their minds. I can go and dig out what I believe are facts. I can make arguments which make sense to me, but there's another person on the other end who either doesn't believe in what I think are facts or just doesn't see my logic or reasoning. You know, it's one of those old jokes about social media, right? Why even bother having an argument? Because no one ever changes their mind. And I wonder if this is true. I try to be open-minded myself when I read other people's articles. I try to read articles that specifically go against my beliefs. Have I had my opinion changed? Occasionally. Uh, is it changed often? No. That worries me. I mean, I guess it just worries me that the place we are in this world with social discourse is that we're all talking but none of us are really listening. And I don't exempt myself from this issue either. Clearly, I have my own biases. I mean, I was arguing one side that was completely opposite to what this other lady was arguing. And it's not like there aren't intelligent people who would totally disagree with me. I know lots of intelligent people who think very differently than I do. So I have to admit, I am having some trepidation about arguing over social media anymore, but I also balance that against the idea that I feel like there truly are many people putting very non-factual information out there, very dangerous information. If you look through Facebook, my Facebook feed is only financial people, but clearly, especially with what's going on in the world today, there's lots of talk about non-financial issues or tangentially financial issues, and part of me really feels like each and every post that has something incredibly factually wrong, it's my duty to comment. It's my duty to show that there's a counter-argument. If I don't, then will these posts just go unchecked and no one will question them and people will just start accepting them because they're there and that there's no other voice giving an opinion? Certainly it's not my job to save the world, but I do think as a physician, as a scientist, when it comes to talking about viruses and pandemics, that my voice is a voice of someone who's been educated, who's spent years and years studying this stuff. So why wouldn't I let my voice be known? And it's not just medicine, right? If you're an expert at certain types of engineering or accounting or juggling, whatever it is that you're an expert in, if you see someone talking about something that you've spent years thinking about and they say something that totally appears wrong to you, how do you just let it go? Do you just let it sit there and say, well, it's not my problem? Even if you know that that information is being spewed out to thousands upon thousands of people who are impressionable, who believe that the person posting that piece is an expert, even if they're not? If there's no countervailing argument from another expert, how do we ever see all the sides of an argument? It's something I've been thinking a lot about, both in the financial realm, in the medical realm, in the political realm. How do we interact with other people? When you're person to person, it's much easier. Maybe when we have these person-to-person -person debates, we never change any minds either, but it feels like it's even harder to do on social media. 
And I think quite a bit about that, especially as someone who is making a podcast, who's having a weekly conversation with all of you. How do we present arguments? How do we describe our opinions and the way we look at the world in a way that's effective? It's something I'm constantly thinking about. It's something I think about, especially when I decide who's going to be on this podcast, what we're going to talk about, how opinions are going to be presented. And I would tell you, I know that often who I have on this podcast, what opinions they express may not agree with yours. In fact, things that I myself say may seem foreign or strange to you, but I would hope that you would see that I have these guests on, or I formulate these opinions based on the best information I have, and that this ultimately is not a one-way conversation, but a two-way conversation. And that's why in the Facebook group, the Earn and Invest Facebook group, as well as in social media, I hope to engage all of you guys. I hope the idea that maybe you hear opinions expressed here that are not your own doesn't scare you away, but engages you, because ultimately... I will never block you from the Facebook group because you present an opinion that isn't my own. In fact, more importantly, I hope on the Facebook group, I hope in the podcast, I hope on all the other social media venues, including Twitter and Instagram, that you feel safe expressing your opinion, whether it agrees with mine or my guests or not, because that's how I believe we move forward. And certainly I'm listening And even if I don't agree with you, I'm thinking deeply about what you're saying and I'm integrating it into my thought processes and it helps me grow and hopefully helps this podcast grow and helps make this community a better community. My arc of the conversation was coming in was that you start with minimalism, the physical decluttering, and you end with the much harder journey of freeing your mind up. And that's, again, I went at it a few different ways, um, talking about how the fact is you weren't like a stuff person to start with. So even when you started your minimalism journey, you were not a major stuff person. So it wasn't like you had a house full of crap. Right. It wasn't like you had 10 cars and, and, you know, 15 pair of gym shoes, (laughs) et cetera. So I went at it that way. I also went at it just from the kind of minimalism versus simplicity way. Um, and then just with some of the symbolism and metaphors of, of kind of this idea of your mental house versus your physical house. Yeah, I like I like the metaphor a lot. Yeah. Well, it worked. Yeah. And I think it worked for who you are. And I, I, I mean, you're, I can, I don't connect with minimalism, but I connect with what you do. So I, in fact, I like simplicity a lot better because okay. I never connected with the idea of stuff or that stuff had any relevance. But of course, I'm not a stuff person. Right. But what you're talking about is clearing your physical space so that you can clear your mental space connects very much with me. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are turned off by minimalism, but are not at all turned off by what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think that that's that's good feedback because um, it was really just in the last few months that I've started using Simplicity Coach as like my title and I've kind of dropped the minimalism and it was interesting the guy who's I'm having someone redo my website right now and he was the one who pointed out he's like simplicity he's like it's just it's so much nicer than minimalism he's like why don't you just say simplicity coach and I'm like 
why don't I just say simplicity? And it's coach? more apt. It actually it better describes because again, you've and if you look at your content, like if you go back and start. So I looked. I went to 2012 and kind of marched my way up. <laughs> oh man, you I saw didn't look at every, I didn't look at everything, but your content does. I mean, yes, you do still have the 10 best ways to declutter, but but you really start a much more emotional, mental journey as it goes on. Yeah, and even I think. That's why I started with the story of your eight-year-old self, because I think that was also a crux in kind of your blogging career where you said, okay, I'm going to put it all out there. It was. And talk yeah. about, but, but that was a big shift because you're like, okay, I'm not really talking about stuff per se anymore. Um, yeah. And so I, I, my goal always with, with the podcast is I want to reflect you. Like whenever I get guests on, my goal is in this podcast, I want to reflect you. So I go and try to figure out bits of you that tell a story of who you've become and why. And to me, that's yeah. what I could see in your content. I mean, I kind of could see it because I've talked to you because we've done a podcast before because I know you, we've spent time in the same physical space. Um, but that kind of is, is what I was looking for. So it wasn't a real stretch for me to talk about these things with you because I could feel it in your writing. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad that you saw that. And it is funny because that that post where you asked about the eight year old self, like when you asked that question, I was like, oh, shit, like he's going right for (laughs) I got to tell that. I've never told that story on a podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.